1975, Paul Watson was a young environmental activist, one of the early members of Greenpeace. He had sailing experience and a love for marine mammals. So when Greenpeace turned its attention to a Russian whaling fleet off the coast of California, Paul signed up. Even before Greenpeace got to the whaling ships, the scene was grim. They passed dead whales floating, abandoned in the water. When they caught up with the whaling fleet, Paul got in the inflatable boat and placed himself in front of the whales. The captain looked at Paul and dragged a finger across his throat. A combination of missiles and harpoons got the whales in the end. As the biggest whale was dying, it came right up next to Paul. Could have killed him. But instead, the whale and Paul, they just looked at each other. That look reorganized Paul's entire life. Paul became bolder in standing up for the causes that he believed in. On one mission, he handcuffed himself to a heap of bloody seal pelts as they were being lifted up to a ship. When his methods became too radical for Greenpeace, he formed his own conservation organization. In 2012, Paul was detained in Germany for an incident with a Costa Rican fishing boat a decade earlier. And that's where the designer Cyril Gutsch first met him. So when I met Paul, I learned about what's going on on the high seas. And to be very frank, I was super shocked. I didn't know any of that. And I was kind of okay informed as a German. You grow up with the environmental consciousness. But learning that the oceans are about to collapse, that we are killing and killing and killing all these animals out there, and that we're taking too much, was for me enough to, to stop being a designer, really. And like Paul's encounter with that dying whale, Cyril's meeting with Paul, well, it reorganized his life too. I'm Damien Bradfield, and this is Influence, a podcast by WeTransfer. Influence is a show about influence, who has it, who wants it, and how to use it for good. Cyril Gutsch founded Parlay for the Oceans in 2012. A former designer, Cyril turned his skills and his contacts toward making a positive impact on the seas, zeroing in on plastic. In one of his early pitches to an investor, he explained his vision for turning marine plastic waste into a premium product. And he was literally laughed out of the room. A decade later, Parley has partnerships with Corona, Adidas, American Express, and is working with the World Bank and the Maldives to implement programs to clean up beaches and use the so-called Parley Ocean Plastics for sneakers and athletic wear. Cyril's goal with Parley is not just to find new ways to upcycle our existing plastic pollution in the oceans, but to design new materials that could replace our reliance on plastic in the future. Cyril, thank you very much for being here. Hey, Damien. Um, thanks for having me and spending your time with me. To be frank, you're one of the pioneers in this space. But for those that don't know, maybe you can just give us a brief heads up on your approach to plastic trash. You know, what is it that you're doing? If you can give us a brief intro, it'd be super fascinating. So 
Palais happened in 2012. And back then I was running a design firm, working as a creative strategist, as a creative director, making people richer, solving problems that are actually are not really problems. Um, and I'm looking back, I, I'm laughing about myself. So what I learned June 16, 2012 was that the oceans will die and that we're going to leave behind a dead sea. That our legacy as a generation would be to destroy this vast blue magic universe down there. Um, so when I met Paul, I learned about what's going on on the high seas. And I called my partner in New York. We were running a design firm here in New York. And we launched Palais for the Oceans without any plan, to be honest. Oh, wow. You know, when I saw at that moment how the environmental movement is, is trying to end the destruction, I felt that there is a role we can play, knowing the industry, um, working with also governments, you know, because we have to get them to change. Uh, all the environmental issues we're facing today are caused by economic failure, really. The way we're making things, the way we are, we are living, but also how we are being supplied with goods, with food, with everything. It's like based on an old economic model that is, in my eyes, not anymore valid. What I loved about the approach that Paul described was that this is bigger than any of us, right? I mean, you just do the best you can. It's not like up to me to solve it. It's not a superhero show. It was something very humbling. And I, I liked it. And um, probably that was what I was waiting for a long time. And what sort of movement did you think you were joining? Defending life out there, defending animals, you know? And at the beginning, it was really about uh, overfishing. Um, the first cause I took on was shark finning. But then I realized quickly that I couldn't activate my network. They wouldn't understand. You know, I couldn't use my contacts in the media world or to governments because they wouldn't understand why it's not okay to kill animals, especially sharks. There was no empathy, no understanding. And they couldn't imagine that we humans uh, would be able to break the sea. And then in 2014, I totally changed. I said, listen, I have to go for something that has the potential to be a mainstream thing, you know, and I, I went for plastic. And the focus on plastic was because of what? Why not overfishing or climate change? Yeah, why plastic? Overfishing and animals underwater, even climate change, um, was very hard to communicate to the masses. It still is, right? Yeah. Honestly, it was very hard for people to identify with these problems. And plastic is simple. And the crazy thing is plastic is always nice. Even if you open a whale, a dead whale, and the belly is full of plastic waste, there are all these colors and shapes that we know from everyday life, that we know from our fridge, from the supermarket. You don't look away. We are attracted by it. We are looking at it. It relates to you. While overfishing, you can say, oh, there are bad guys out there. They're killing animals in a, in a cruel way. But that's not me. While plastic, it could be you. It could be your bottle. It could be your toothpaste tube. This piece of plastic that ends up in the belly of an animal could come from you. I mean, I can remember seeing plastic on the beach, but I certainly haven't opened up a whale and seen it. So where are you in the world where you've experienced this and had this moment? The first time I encountered plastic was 
with a trailer and uh, Julian Schnabel and the artist that supported us from day one, he showed it to me and actually it was 2013 and he showed it to me and said, listen, Cyril, um, this is cruel. And it was a little clip of plastic birds, like starving and, and full, their bellies full of trash. And that kind of caught my attention. And then I was like researching a lot and there were myths of a plastic continent growing in the, the five gyres at the, uh, on the high seas, which obviously is not true, but there was a lot of like storytelling around plastic pollution, but then there were also like hard facts. And then visiting countries, visiting small island development states, I witnessed firsthand, you know, what plastic does to these remote locations, what it does to animals. Beaches where nobody lives would be like completely polluted with trash and just wash up or it would be underwater. Yeah, it's just horrendous. I just want to pick up on something you mentioned there briefly. I, I heard you say that Julian Schnabel was helping you in the beginning. You've partnered with Doug Aitken in the past. So what's the relationship with these artists and their involvement? We launched Palais out of the heart of the art community because I felt that the artist is the perfect collaboration enabler. Because what I realized is that we have to make peace. We have to create an organization that brings together people that otherwise would not work together, wouldn't collaborate, and probably would never change their mind about what they're doing to the planet every day. Industrialists, government officials, um, scientists, artists, designers, investors even. And I felt that the artist could host the perfect collaboration space. So the first artist was Julian Schnabel, and he also painted our logo. It was originally just meant for an invite. Okay. And, <laughs> nice. and, yeah, and then he invited with us and for us people that he thought could help. And 100 people showed up. Oh. They wanted to know what this about and how they can contribute. And I would say art and artists stayed the core of our network forever. I mean, right now we have over 30 collaborations. And you mentioned Doug Aitken. Um, there's people at risk, Jenny Holzer, um, Rosemary Trockel, Ed Rocher. I mean, the, the list is long. We have a lot of supporters. And I felt that art has that power, you know, to invite people to a conversation and they would attend with an open mind. And do you think they found it easy to comprehend or digest or to get involved in because of the physicality and what you were talking about in terms of you know, the tangibility of plastic itself. Do you think that's the trigger? For some it is. Kenny Scharf, for example, now just did an edition for us or Katharina Grosse did an edition for us. They would paint like original artworks on surfboards um, that then we can sell and use the money to protect um, shorelines against plastic pollution. And uh, these two cases, for example, they were very passionate about removing trash from beaches. In other cases, it can be more abstract that the artist just loves the ocean. It's it had different motivations. I and mean, it's either love or it's really like the willingness to, to have impact in a certain area, even to say, hey, I love Mexico or I love the Seychelles or I love Chile. And I really want these, these waters to be protected. It's an interesting thing that seems to be happening. And I'm just going to draw a party that I was talking to recently called Art for Acres. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've come across them, but a lady called Haley Mallon is running a scheme that's probably not too dissimilar to yours in the construction that um, she works with big name artists who auction a piece of work and the money from the auction will go towards buying up land so that there's ownership of land so that you can control 
um, you know, the ecosystem and, and make sure that the trees or the, the wildlife that's being planted is stable. I mean, maybe this is just the way that I interpret it, but she seems to have quite an easy job of convincing some incredibly important artists to willingly hand over their time and money to support a cause that's tangible. I'm just guessing here, but it seems to resonate with you know, some of the most influential artists in the world. It does. Um, working with artists isn't easy, though. No. I love them. Honestly, I believe artists are the better people. I truly believe that. But if you want to do it right, then just needs a lot of attention. Okay. You want to dive deep. You want to create a mutual understanding for each other. You want to expose the artist to the beauty and the horror out there. You want to take them on trips. You want to go to islands, to expeditions. And you want to get their head underwater, get them into the salt water, <laughs> expose them to life down there. All right. Be very open about what can be achieved, you know, because uh, expectations are often very high. Operating out there in the wild costs money. But to be honest, we have made the most amazing experiences with artists. Can you walk us through one or give us an example of uh, a partnership that has either been difficult or ideally difficult and amazing as an end result? That would be fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> so... The partnership with Doug Aitken is a special one. He became a very dear friend. And he had this idea of creating underwater pavilions. And I just came back from um, NASA JPL, where we had a big meeting about how the space industry and the ocean community could collaborate more. And I was sitting then in his office, in his studio, and he showed me these like, sketches of three pavilions that would float underwater. And coming from NASA JPL with like Mars rovers, it looked so simple. I was like, of course, let's do that. Let's create these three sculptures. We're going to have them underwater. We bring you some of our best people like Sylvia Earle used to build submarines, you know, and we definitely can make that work. Uh, it wasn't that easy. <laughs> <laughs> Is this off Catalina? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So yeah. funny, the last time I saw Doug and I know him reasonably well. Mm. And I seem to remember Doug building these sculptures, but I didn't realize it was for you, actually. Yeah, we did it together. Nice. It was super challenging. They're supposed to live, right? The idea is that coral and... They attract yeah. life, yeah. And I mean, these are like beautiful objects that are in some part a little rough, like moon surface, lunar-ish, but in other areas, high-polished, mirrored. And they would float in different depths and... They look like these alien objects, you know, and when you go down there, you feel like, oh my God, this is not how I know the oceans. You would see the world down there in a different way. They are really portals or gates. They change the view towards this being a universe, this being this forgotten world, alien world, where there's so much to discover. What happens to these objects is that they're never the same. They are always transforming through light, reflections, animals passing by. So it's really a living artwork. And out of that came, I would say, uh, a long-term project. We now developed a new set, which we're deploying in St. Bart, and we're working on a larger journey, really, uh, around underwater pavilions, um, also with the idea to bring them to the Maldives, where we identified a lagoon where they could permanently live. You, you do choose some quite good locations. <laughs> 
<laughs> acupuncture spots of planet Earth. You know, you you have to take in consideration that you want to reach the right people. There's a narrative to it as well, where you want to tell tales. And being in the Maldives is nearly abstract. You're like, oh my God, the Maldives, is that even real? They really exist. And then you have a million people um, being tourists and they're open for discovery. And that's the moment where you get them and you can turn them into ambassadors. But also from a graphic visual standpoint, um, these are very special places and are very good spaces for art, I feel. And working on islands is something I really love because islands provoke us. They give us the opportunity to question the way we are living with the sea and, and also making us understand that there are different ways and different forms of settling on land, right? I mean, we don't have to exploit, damage, and destroy. We can find new ways. And an island is that invitation to start from scratch, I feel. Every time I'm going to an uninhabited island, I feel like, oh my God, I want to be careful. I'm a visitor here. How would I live here? You know, And art, I think, is a perfect way of exploring such thoughts. So it feels to me as if um, the work that you're doing today is an extension of what you were doing previously in, in your agency life, in that you're creating experiences, you're creating the conduit you're basically matching um, people with projects and trying to solve a problem. Is that a fair analysis? Totally fair. I'm an instrument or my profession is a precision tool. I'm trained to manipulate people. That's not, that's not what I was saying. <laughs> yeah, but that's what it is. You know, I mean, manipulation is, of course, it has a very negative touch, but there is, uh, you can also say creating reality or establishing value system. There's so many ways of describing that, but Technically, it's manipulation, right? And manipulating reality. And, and right now, we want to create a reality where it's not anymore about ego shooting. It's not anymore about, oh, I just take, take, take away from others and I kill whatever I like and bring it home and put it on the wall or eat it up. I think the job now is to create a reality that is based on collaboration between humans and nature. And I feel that by bringing it to life, at a small scale and speaking about it and sharing it, you are spreading ideas. You're actually growing a reality concept. That's my job, I feel. You know, I, I want to show that there's another form of life for us humans here. And the old ways are probably coming to an end rapidly. You know, that's my role. And, and designing things, creating things, um, is part of that. It's about making things real. You know, you can speak about a problem as long as you want. You can shame people, you can blame them. But if you take an object and you make it from a new material, for example, or you find a new model around it, and you're establishing even a new business model or something, you know, then it's suddenly real. Nobody will question it anymore. And they will not fight you as an idealist. They would just say, oh my God, there's something nice. This, it was invented. And to be honest, that's what led us here. Inventions, ideas, ingenuity led us to this moment of total destruction of this planet because people didn't know better. They had the best of intentions. Probably they even wanted to protect the environment with some of these inventions that are today known to be destructive forces. Why did you not just produce a documentary and you know, sell it to Netflix or HBO or something? as opposed to going on a torturous journey with Doug Aitken under the sea in Catalina. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Yeah. Um, I'm a designer. I'm not per se somebody who exposes or confronts in public. Um, we do produce documentaries. We support other filmmakers and we do investigations a lot. Often these investigations land on the table of a CEO or of a president of a country. We have a different method. My role is more being in the conference room with people who are sinners oh, wow. and try to kind of convince them that there is another way. They don't want to hear that you're telling them that eating fish is probably not the right thing to do or um, stopping their relationship with the fossil fuel industry. They don't want to hear that. And where are you? Where are these meetings happening? I mean, right now, presume, you know, before that it was around the world, uh, Southeast Asia, Europe, um, it's happening anywhere. Now we are, mm. we are working now with governments, we're working with intergovernment organizations, we're working with corporations. And why would, they, why would they invite you in? Who wants to sit in a meeting with you and be told <laughs> that they're terrible people? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good point. Uh, everybody wants to talk about it and everybody hates to talk about it. We are in this like, situation where everybody knows they can't continue the way they're doing things, but then they don't want to change. Okay. I was invited in South Korea to open a government-managed um, ocean conference. I was the keynote speaker, but for me was this trailer of like, the future is in exploitation of the oceans. There is so much business. And they showed these robots and massive, like crazy catching devices. And, and then it's you next? And then I, I spoke for 45 minutes and I'm like, guys, this has to stop. No, we can't, we can't keep killing the oceans. The business of the future is not in killing and exploiting the sea. <laughs> and then there was silence after my talk. And like a split second after I ended, they suddenly all applauded. And the first row was like defense, um, the biggest fishing fleet. So I was sitting down next to the um, minister for agriculture and fisheries. He said, you're right. I will not admit that in public, but you're right. We know that. And that's the situation right now. Everybody in charge knows that we are in a very dangerous situation. But how do you convey such a message to the public? So what are they doing then? Are they inviting you in just to, to make everyone aware that they are doing something, although they're not doing anything? There's a lot of that, okay. yes. I think there is this um, notion of, oh, get a critical voice in there, and then everybody feels good. Oh my God, we confronted the truth. You should charge them a lot. They actually paid a lot to the foundation. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? Um, you don't see the immediate effect, but then after years, often people come back and said, you know what? That moved me. And then I, I changed something. So even if you're being used in that moment, and I'm being used a lot over the last 10 years, and I'm so used to being used, but if you're passionate, if you're full of like that, I would say, willingness to change their mind and you still show respect, but you also confront them with what's going on, there's always an impact. You've managed to get some of these companies on side so they yeah. don't all hate you. I mean, you've done a very good job with, I'm just going to name the ones that I'm familiar with. So Adidas, American Express, Corona. How do these work? Because was that also you initially being invited in and people going, yeah, thanks, uh, Cyril, and goodbye? Or did these guys really want to get involved? Um, Adidas was very different. We picked them. 
because we believe that we need this one company to collaborate with that is in the intersection between youth, high performance, like athletes, uh, and fashion. And Adidas, for us, was a very good entry point to influence a lot of other corporations, right? And on the other hand, I, I felt that they were prepared. I felt that they would be open to actually uh, change something. But we negotiated for two years until we signed the contract. And yeah, we wanted them to implement our strategy long-term. Strategy is called AIR, avoid, intercept, and redesign. Avoid plastic as much as you can. Intercept plastic debris, upcycle it. And then redesign means like inventing or investing into the invention of alternative materials. And they committed to that strategy in a very large scale. And honestly, for a long period of time, we brought them the first innovation that was ocean plastic, um, turning marine plastic debris into a premium yarn for the sports and fashion industry. What do you feel is the most urgent thing to you right now? Where we made progress is by changing people's mind and breaking the trust in old standards like plastic. And I would say the industry discovered that there is a strong need for them to change, but also the consumers are actually finally asking for it. And I think if we wouldn't have put out product with Adidas at an early stage, there wouldn't be a blueprint. So a lot of people followed that example and saw that um, Palais Ocean Plastic and Adidas Palais um, was very successful. And suddenly these products sold a lot and Adidas won market shares in areas they didn't before. So at some point, all different industries came to us and said, we want to repeat the same what you're doing there. But they weren't ready to give the same commitment at Adidas. So that was very difficult for us because we, we won this very strong partner and everybody else was shying away from strong commitments. I also seem to remember reading or hearing you say that Adidas didn't actually put a lot of money behind uh, the marketing or the promotion of this. It blew up because of organic press. So what commitments did Adidas make to actually see this through? I mean, one of the biggest commitments is to go out of virgin plastic by end of 24. And, and they're doing that? Oh, yeah. They are already 60-something percent wow. through. And that's a massive commitment um, because these supply chain recycled materials, they're not easy to change. You know, They're not easy to scale. And, and do you think this is down to you guys? Yeah, 100%. And we are like the peak of the iceberg of change, right? I mean, our materials are very difficult to, to extract, pricey to process, and it's definitely premium. Um, so that is making out a certain part of the Adidas product range now. But changing it all, that's a commitment. You know, it's not anymore going for proof of concepts, pilots, things like that. We are at the moment right now where we need change at scale. And then also investing into new technologies, investing into biofabricated materials, investing into green chemistry, you know, where there is a replacement coming for plastic. Because to be very honest, uh, recycling will not end these problems. Recycling is a band-aid. Plastic is a design failure. Plastic is toxic. And even if I recycle this material, it's still toxic. It still sheds, it still leaches, it still gases off. So I'm not making plastic better by recycling it. But of course, I'm helping animals out there if I'm taking it away from them so they're not eating it. What can I do? What can I buy that could be you know, on a part of what you're doing with Adidas, perhaps more accessible? And second part of the question is, who else is out there that's making 
you know, similar sort of steps as Adidas and others? I think there are other partnerships that we also um, built over the years. And one is with Corona, where they became plastic neutral this year. And there are lots of others that we work with where it's not per se about using recycled material, but also about like finding alternatives, like working with like mushroom-based leather or going completely natural. And I think when you are looking at options right now, then you find lots of brands that try. We should encourage them. Yes, it's great to call them out as greenwasher if they are just pretending. But then there are also a lot of brands that really try hard, you know, and it's not easy. And I feel that the answer of the consumer today is to address their concern and say, listen, I don't want plastic items. I don't want virgin plastic to be used. I want to see alternatives. But knowing that this will take a second. And I think in the meantime, right now, it's about like stopping the overconsumption. We should like not rely on trust seals. We should not rely on guarantees. We should just reduce drastically the amount of items we are consuming. It's not the moment of perfection. It's not the moment where you can live a fully environmental-friendly life. It's not possible. We are addicted to plastic. We are running on that material. And we should not like punish ourselves for that. But we should be very clear in our expectation that the industry finds ways to invent their way out of this. And that's what we should voice. And that concludes our episode for today. Thank you to Cyril Gutsch for turning your talents towards the planet. Influence is a show hosted by me, Damian Bradfield. Our producer is the amazing and ever-patient Rachel Swaby, with editing from Elise Hugh and Audrey No. Sound engineering is done by Mark Bush, and our WeTransfer creative producer is Linda Mertens. A huge thank you to our studio in Amsterdam Center Sound, and you can find Influence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you're enjoying the show, please follow us, rate us, leave us a review, tell your friends, And if you think there's someone we should interview, you can just tweet me at DJ Bradfield. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer produced in association with Reasonable Volume. See you next time. Listener.